to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Prime Minister Sana Marin is defeated in Finland's parliamentary election. Oil prices surge after OPEC Plus announces surprise output cuts. Finland is set to join NATO today. Israel's cabinet approves Ben Gavir's private militia plan. A St. Petersburg blast kills a Russian blogger. Malaysia moves to end the mandatory death penalty. Twitter strips the New York Times of its blue check. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson announces his presidential bid. A DeSantis supporting super PAC has reportedly raised $30 million. And NASA names the first woman and black man for a moon mission. In our top story, Finnish Prime Minister Sana Marin is defeated in Finland's parliamentary election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Guardian, Associated Press, CNBC, BBC News and Reuters. Finland's left-wing Prime Minister Sana Marin conceded defeat in the nation's parliamentary election on Sunday as the opposition right-wing National Coalition Party, or NCP, claimed victory in a tightly fought contest. The NCP won 48 out of 200 parliamentary seats and 20.8% of the vote, while the right-wing populist Finns party took 46 seats and scored 20.1% of the vote. Marin's Social Democratic Party emerged as the third-largest party with 19.9% of the vote and 43 seats. Since no party is in a position to form a government alone, NCP leader Pateri Orpo will reportedly get the first chance to lead negotiations and form a coalition to obtain a majority in parliament and presumably become prime minister. Marin, the world's youngest prime minister when she took office in 2019 at the age of 34, headed a coalition of five parties, all led by women. Under Marin, Finland, which shares the longest EU border with Russia, moved away from neutrality and joined NATO in response to the invasion of Ukraine. The country officially becomes the military alliance's 31st member on Tuesday. Meanwhile, Finland is grappling with the rising cost of living and energy crisis, with public debt reaching 71% of GDP as of the third quarter of 2022. The country's economy survived the pandemic, but growth slowed to 1.9% last year, while inflation peaked at 9.1%. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts. Let's begin our narrative spins today with the left narrative from Express. Sana Marin's defeat is the latest setback for the left amid a larger shift to conservative and nationalist parties across Europe. It also signals a power shift in Finland's political scene, as the nation is likely to get a new center-right government with an anti-immigration anti-EU, and anti-climate action coalition partner. Europe must keep a close eye on Finland's far right and try to understand why populists and the far right are sweeping the elections. And we counter that with a right narrative coming from Spectator. Though she was applauded for her response to Russia's war against Ukraine and Finland's bid to join NATO, Marin was primarily responsible for eroding the country's economic resilience. The global progressive icon's attempt to keep her coalition together at the cost of economic growth, led to a sharp rise in the country's public debt. Meanwhile, her determination to exercise her right to party with Finnish celebrities at the peak of the energy crisis eventually dashed her hopes of a second term as prime minister. 
Well, I won't be the first person to say it, and I probably won't be the last. I think it's fair to say that Marin is Finnish. That does it, Scott. That does yeah. it. That's just <laughs> too be, much. I might be Finnish now myself. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I mean, if that wasn't a dad joke. Father of two, right here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Oil prices surge after OPEC plus surprise output cuts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, CNBC, BBC News, Reuters, and The New York Times. Fuel prices rose sharply after Saudi Arabia and other OPEC plus countries announced a surprise round of output cuts on Sunday. The 1.16 million barrel per day, or BPD, cuts could potentially spell trouble for global inflation, which was slowing down just days after an optimistic report on U.S. price data. According to an official with the Saudi Ministry of Energy, Saudi Arabia will begin its planned production cuts in May. The cuts will last through the end of the year. Following the announcement, oil prices initially jumped by as much as 8%. In addition, Russia said it will extend its reduction of 500,000 barrels per day until the end of the year. Oil prices soared when Russia invaded Ukraine. However, the U.S. has been calling for oil producers to increase output, and prices have stabilized to pre-war levels. OPEC Plus had been expected to maintain its earlier decision to cut output by 2 million BPD until December at its monthly meeting on Monday. The pledges bring the total volume of cuts by OPEC Plus to 3.66 million BPD, equal to 3.7% of global demand. Saudi Arabia reportedly is relying on high oil revenues to support ambitious development plans aimed at diversifying Riyadh's economy away from oil. Oil prices dipping towards $70 per barrel in mid-March may have unsettled the kingdom, which may have prompted the production cut. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin for this story is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Bloomberg. The surprise cuts by OPEC Plus are ill-advised as the decision comes just as markets and inflation are recovering. Tensions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been strained since last year when the kingdom refused to pump more. U.S.-Saudi relations will only deteriorate further so long as OPEC Plus continues this trend. And Forbes brings us the establishment critical narrative. Saudi Arabia was looking to offer the U.S. a 500,000 barrel per day deal, but Washington said no. The problem here is simple and it all lies at the feet of the U.S. government. If America doesn't want to drill its oil in the name of transitioning to green energy, then it shouldn't be mad when OPEC Plus does the same thing. In terms of this story and some of the things that are happening between both countries, it sure is a slippery slope. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I've slipped on an oil puddle before. It's really bad. And then the worst part about it is now you fell in an oil puddle. Oh, you know, it's horrible. Yeah. As someone who has also slipped on a banana peel before, at least you just kind of fall on a banana peel. Believe me, if you step in an oil puddle, you're going down. That was a slick story of yours, Scott. In our next story, Finland is set to join NATO today. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Associated Press, and Euronews. Finland is set to become NATO's 31st member today. Atlantic Alliance Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg told reporters that Finland will be a full member of the alliance. Stoltenberg called the move historic as Finland shares an 810-mile border with Russia. Moscow has pledged to bolster its border security as adversarial NATO's frontier with Russia has doubled. Stoltenberg also criticized Russian President Putin. 
He stated that Russia's military operation in Ukraine has yielded, quote, the exact opposite of Putin's goal of a diminished NATO presence. Turkey's vote paved the way for Finland to join the alliance days after Hungary endorsed Helsinki's bid. However, both countries have refrained from supporting Sweden's application, and the Nordic country's status remains unresolved. Sweden's head of the foreign ministry, Tobias Billström, recently said that he is less confident that Sweden would be able to join NATO by July. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts on this Finland-heavy newscast. We have an anti-Russia narrative from Business Insider. Finland's accession to NATO is a huge affront to Putin, as Moscow's geopolitical calculations worsen. The Atlantic Alliance has now doubled its border with Russia, despite the Kremlin's previous threats against Nordic countries for attempting to join NATO. Putin's war on Ukraine has brought the exact opposite of what he hoped for. RT brings us a pro-Russian narrative for this story. While Russia is certainly not thrilled about Finland joining NATO, the Kremlin is not overly concerned. Moscow will do what it must to reinforce its military capabilities on its western and northwestern borders, but Russia does not pose a threat to Finland or Sweden. This is more of a non-event than western governments would like to convey. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 70% chance that Sweden will join NATO before 2024. Israel's cabinet approves Ben Gavir's National Guard plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Arabia, The Times of Israel, France 24, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. On Sunday, Israel approved the formation of a National Guard, proposed by controversial National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir, to deal with civil unrest in mixed Jewish-Arab areas. They refrained, however, from immediately giving Ben-Gavir direct command. Ben-Gavir, leader of the far-right Jewish Power Party, said the force would deal with emergency scenarios, nationalistic crime, terror, and strengthening sovereignty. To create the force, Israeli ministries across the board will see a 1.5% cut to their budgets, handing the National Security Ministry around $278 million. The force will also have 2,000 service members in its ranks. Amid concerns that it could become a private so-called militia, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office said a committee comprised of members of Israel's security agencies would propose within 90 days whether the police or another body should be in charge of the force. The creation of a new National Guard was a condition set by Ben Gavir to agree to freeze the government's controversial judicial overhaul, which had sparked weeks-long protests across the country and a crippling general strike last Monday. It was also noted in Netanyahu's statement that the force would deal with national emergency situations, like the unrest that swept some Israeli cities during the 11-day Gaza conflict in 2021 with Palestinian militants. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is coming from Jerusalem Post. It is a pro-Israel narrative. It says, considering the riots that swept Israel during the 2021 war with terrorists in Gaza, it makes sense that the government should create a new force to deal with similar situations in the future. However, Ben Gavir might not be the right person to command such a force, as he is particularly controversial within the Israeli public and security apparatus. Though he is an integral part of Netanyahu's government, Putting too much power in his hands may cause issues for Israel's security. And the pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. As Netanyahu continues to pander to Israel's far-right Jewish supremacists, Palestinians will ultimately suffer at the hands of Ben Gavir's sectarian militia. Besides the fact that such a militia will only worsen the brutality of the occupation, it will also, quite ironically, negatively affect Israel's security. Ben Gavir cannot be allowed to build his own state within a state. 
Metaculous Prediction Community is chiming in with their nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 7% chance that civil war will break out in Israel before 2024. A St. Petersburg blast kills a Russian blogger and injures 32 more. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, Ukrainska Pravda, Ukraine Forum, and BBC News. A blast in a St. Petersburg cafe on Sunday killed a prominent Russian military blogger and injured 32 other civilians, 10 of whom remain in a serious condition, Russian authorities said on Monday. Russian officials also confirmed that they arrested Daria Trepova on Monday, a St. Petersburg resident wanted in connection with the blast after she was seen handing a figurine, the source of the blast, to Vladin Tatarsky moments before it detonated and took his life. Tatarsky, whose real name was Maxim Fomin, had more than 560,000 followers on Telegram and was one of the country's most influential military bloggers. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova blamed Ukraine for the attack. Meanwhile, Mikhailo Podolyak, a Ukrainian presidential advisor, said turmoil inside Russia was to blame. Quote, spiders are eating each other in a jar, he said. Neither account could be confirmed and motivation for the blast has not been publicly identified. Meanwhile, a separate terror attack was carried out on Monday in the Russian-held city of Melitopol in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region. A car explosion targeted Maxim Zuberev, a Ukrainian serving as the head of the Russian administration in the village of Yakamivka. It was reported that he was in a hospital with serious injuries, but that he survived the attack. In Russian attacks over the past day, Ukrainian officials reported that six civilians were killed and 15 more were injured in the Donetsk region. One civilian was reported killed in Kherson, while another was reported injured in Kharkiv. The region of Mykolaiv was also attacked without reports of civilian casualties. In Donetsk's Bakhmut, the site of months of fighting, the head of the Russian mercenary force Wagner PMC, Evgeny Prigozhin, said he has raised a Russian flag over Bakhmut's city hall, making it Russian, quote, in a legal sense. However, he conceded that Ukrainian forces remain engaged in fighting in the west of the city. Ukrainian officials said Prigozhin's account was, quote, fake. In other developments, the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, or UOC, Metropolitan Pavel, who is currently at the center of a dispute with the Ukrainian government over leasing the Kiev Pechersk Lavra Monastery, was placed under house arrest and ordered to wear an electronic bracelet over the weekend. He was charged with condoning Russia's invasion, which he denies. A lot of action in Ukraine. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. Here's an anti-Russia narrative from Pravda. The murder of the Russian military blogger took place inside a cafe owned by Wagner PMC head Yugeni Prigozhin. This was likely intended as a warning to Prigozhin, who has questioned the Kremlin's talking points on Ukraine and was part of an effort by Russian authorities to consolidate control of the information space. TASS brings us a pro-Russian narrative. This was a despicable act of terrorism which resulted in the death of one person and injured 30 more. Russia's National Anti-Terrorism Committee is still investigating the crime and it remains too early to identify the motive. However, there are signs that Ukraine's security service may have had a hand to play. And finally, we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This says that there's a 25% chance there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. Malaysia's parliament moves to end its mandatory death penalty. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, Bloomberg, and the Associated Press. 
Malaysia's House of Representatives on Monday approved a parliamentary bill abolishing the mandatory death penalty and lifelong imprisonment after years of the government seeking to make such punishment optional in the country. Alternatives to the death penalty, which will also be repealed as an option for some serious crimes that do not cause death, include whipping and imprisonment of between 30 to 40 years under the amendments passed. The parliament's upper house, Dewan Nigara, will now take up the legislation, which is widely expected to be passed. If approved, it will be sent to the king to be signed into law. While a moratorium on all executions has been in effect since 2018, the death penalty is the mandatory sentence for 11 crimes in Malaysia, including murder and terrorism. In exceptional cases, judges will retain discretion to impose capital punishment. More than 1,300 people currently are on death row, including those who have exhausted all other legal appeals, and they may now seek a sentencing review under the new laws. Once the bill comes into effect, prisoners will reportedly have 90 days to file a review of their sentences, but not their convictions. Most cases are related to drug trafficking. Those were the facts, and the first spin is Narrative A coming from Al Jazeera. Capital punishment causes irreversible harm and violates people's right to life. Despite being mandatory for decades, the death penalty and other capital punishments have not deterred crime effectively. It is about time Malaysia achieved this breakthrough to inspire other Southeast Asia to rethink their use of the death penalty. And the Sun Daily brings us Narrative B. The death penalty is still necessary and should remain enforced in Malaysia, especially when it comes to serious crimes like murder and terrorism. Capital punishment does not just deter crimes, it also offers a sense of justice for victims. Serious crimes deserve serious punishments, and the law should reflect this. I don't know about you, but I'm dying to find out how this all plays out. I, I'm always fascinated. I think I share this with many people on the concept of a last meal. You know, you th- you're thinking about what that would be. Do you have? Mm. Do you have? Do you know what your last meal would be? Certainly not cricket flour. I can tell you that. <laughs> Malaysia. <laughs> I know. <laughs> In our next story, Twitter strips the New York Times of its blue check. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, CNN, Washington Post, BBC News, and Axios. Twitter has removed its verification checkmark from the site's main profile of the New York Times. Last month, Twitter owner Elon Musk announced that legacy verified users would have their blue ticks removed unless they paid the subscription fee for the site's new service, Twitter Blue, by April 1st. It comes at a cost of $8 per month, while for organizations, the monthly rate is $1,000. However, as the deadline came and went, Many organizations that had announced they wouldn't pay the fee alongside the Times, including outlets such as The Washington Post, CNN, and Politico, still had their check marks intact. Some have speculated that Musk may be retaliating against the Times after learning of their decision from a post shared on his site. He said, Oh, okay, we'll take it off then. According to two former Twitter employees, other organizations haven't had their verifications removed because it requires a manual process meaning it could take weeks to remove the blue checks for all those who haven't upgraded to the new service. A further reason, according to an internal Twitter document cited by the Times, was that the 10,000 most followed organizations would be exempt from the rule anyway, meaning popular news sites were likely to be spared in either case. Among those who said they wouldn't pay for the new service is the White House. The decision doesn't necessarily apply to government agencies, and it's expected that some individuals, such as the president and vice president, would retain their gray check marks, representing a government official free of charge. Thanks for that social media update, Eric. We have a narrative A from BBC. 
Musk should never have overhauled the legacy system, and his latest decision is a direct assault on the New York Times, a publication which he's not been shy to air his dislike of. After deciding to remove their verification, he hurled abuse at them, accusing them of spreading propaganda and stating that, quote, their feed is the Twitter equivalent of diarrhea. The Wall Street Journal brings us narrative B for this story. Twitter gave plenty of warning that those who failed to subscribe to the new service would lose their blue tick. The New York Times may be the first, but it won't be the last. The new subscription service, which also offers additional features such as the ability to edit tweets, is better than the classist old system and will rightly increase revenue. And narrative C comes from Sky News. While the issue surrounding legacy verification checkmark sorts itself out, an immediate consequence is that it's no longer possible to distinguish between profiles that deserve the verification and those who paid for it. Celebrities and public figures often relied on checkmarks to avoid being confused with imposters. That reassurance is no longer available. Former Arkansas Governor Hutchinson announces his presidential run. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, NBC News, CBS News, Daily Wire, Fox News, and NPR Online News. Asa Hutchinson, former Republican governor of Arkansas, on Sunday announced, during a television appearance, that he will run for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. He said he will make a formal announcement later this month. Hutchinson is the fourth Republican to announce a 2024 run, following former President Donald Trump, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. During his appearance on ABC This Week, Hutchinson said during his travels around the U.S., people have asked for better leadership from leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. Hutchinson's announcement is the first by a Republican candidate since Trump was indicted by a New York grand jury last week. When asked if Trump should drop out of the race, Hutchinson said the former president should for the sake of the office and to avoid making it a sideshow and distraction. Term limits ended Hutchinson's tenure as Arkansas governor in January. He served in Congress in the 1990s and was head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, as well as an undersecretary of Homeland Security during the George W. Bush administration. As governor, Hutchinson signed a near-total abortion ban and supported the death penalty, but he also bucked his party's positions when he vetoed legislation banning gender transition surgery for minors and supporting mask mandates during the COVID pandemic. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-Trump narrative coming from InfoWars. Hutchinson is another rhino, Republican in name only, with a minuscule chance of claiming the GOP nomination. He was on the wrong side of Biden's vaccine and mask mandates and vetoed a bill that would have protected children from gender-affirming care. He truly sealed his fate, however, with his criticisms of Trump, who is still the standard-bearer for the party. Cross that with this Republican narrative from National Review. Attacking Hutchinson on his Republican bona fides is ridiculous considering his track record on abortion, his strong relationship with the National Rifle Association, and his hardline position against the Affordable Care Act. Republicans would be wise to consider someone like Hutchinson in the primary mix, along with Trump, to provide multiple options to defeat Biden. The nerds are saying there's a 52% chance that on January 1st, 2024 prediction markets will say Trump will most likely be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. That's coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. According to a special report, DeSantis's supporting super PAC has raised $30 million. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, The Hill, CNBC, and NBC. 
On Sunday, an anonymous official from Never Back Down, a super PAC that will likely serve as a source of support for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' potential bid for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, said the PAC has raised $30 million since March 9th. DeSantis has not officially announced his candidacy. Never Back Down was formed last month by former senior Trump official Ken Cuccinelli and recently hired Mac Walking, the head of Trump's rapid response team during the 2020 campaign. Jeff Rowe, who was campaign manager for Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, during the 2016 presidential race, has also been hired. The super PAC has raised more than half its money online from outside Florida, and none of it was transferred from another fundraising entity. DeSantis is considered by the polls to be former President Trump's stiffest competitor. The Florida governor has been on a book tour that already took him through Iowa, an important early voting state, and should soon take him to New Hampshire. Meanwhile, Trump was indicted last week by a Manhattan grand jury. His campaign has raised more than $4 million since the indictment was announced. And we have another instance of Republican versus pro-Trump narrative. Let's start with the Republican narrative from Fox News. Trump had his chance as president for four years, and now it's DeSantis' turn to make America great again, but this time in a more stable, adept manner. DeSantis is by far the best chief executive the U.S. has seen at any level of government in decades. He's proven he can defeat the radical left on everything from coronavirus restrictions to corporate activism. When he gets into the race, there will be a groundswell of support already waiting for him. This will be an exciting GOP primary. New York Post gives us a pro-Trump narrative. DeSantis and the other would-be challengers to Trump should just forget about it. Now that the Democratic witch hunt has led to a Trump indictment in New York, the former president is more popular than ever, and his lead in the polls is growing. Trump is a sure bet to be the nominee, and the DeSantis hype is fading. Our final story, NASA names its first woman and black man for the moon mission. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, BBC News, and Space Flight Now. The U.S. space agency NASA has named four astronauts, three Americans and one Canadian, for the Artemis II lunar mission. Among them are the first woman and first black man to partake in a mission to the moon, Christina Koch and Victor Glover. 44-year-old Koch will be a mission specialist for the lunar flyby, is an engineer who already holds the record for longest continuous space flight by a woman, and was part of NASA's first three all-female spacewalks. Glover, 46, is a U.S. Navy test pilot who joined NASA in 2013 and made his first space flight in 2020. He was previously the first African-American to stay on the space station for an extended period of six months. Though they won't land on or even enter the moon's orbit, the four astronauts will be the first to fly NASA's Orion capsule no earlier than 2024 as a prelude to a lunar landing by two others a year later. The announcement comes after NASA and the Canadian Space Agency reached an agreement in 2020 to put a Canadian on the Artemis II mission. Royal Canadian Air Force Captain Jeremy Hansen will also be making his first spaceflight mission. Artemis II's astronaut crew shows NASA is keeping its promise to bring greater diversity to its exploration efforts, as all previously crewed missions to the moon consisted of white men. Scott, thank you for the facts of that interesting story. Science News Explorers gives us a left narrative for it. When NASA first put humans on the moon over 50 years ago, the U.S. was severely lacking in diversity and inclusivity. Thankfully, the country and NASA have come a long way not only in providing opportunities for women and people of color, but in acknowledging the professional and scientific benefits of a more diverse team of astronauts. 
the diverse future of space exploration will expand our knowledge and experiences both on the moon and back on Earth. And Aerial Magazine brings us the right narrative. While equal opportunity should be celebrated, whether in the academic or professional world, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs can have a negative impact if the best person for the job happens to be black or a woman, which may certainly be the case here, that's fine. But to pursue diverse candidates for the sole purpose of fulfilling a racial or gender quota may not even lead to true diversity, let alone picking the best candidate. Skin color or any other immutable characteristic won't tell you if someone is the cream of the crop. Only their proven skills can do that. Was it ever a dream of yours, Eric, to go to the moon or go into space or be an astronaut or anything like that? What are you talking about? I've been to the moon. I'm there right now, baby. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Would you like more information on Improve the News? Visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.